the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition. Is that right? Is this, this is the Tuesday edition, isn't it? This is the Tuesday. It's Wednesday already. How did that happen? Anyway, <laughs> welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Oh, this is Tuesday. I, I can't hear you. This is Tuesday, right? It's. <laughs> Can we just turn back the hands of time and start over? If only it were that simple. Well, it is the, <laughs> the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I've spent so much time today working on things that have to be done for tomorrow that it seems like tomorrow is today. Anyway, you probably know what day it is, and I'm glad we finally caught up <laughs> today on the program. You'll have an opportunity to hear a conversation with Colin Smith. He's the author of Heaven So Far. Uh, So near, so far, the story of Judas Iscariot, not a subject you cover very often, but that'll be coming up in the second hour. And we'll uh, talk about Afghanistan and Iraq and whether or not we've become a rather lazy nation. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, a look at some of the day's uh, headlines. Well, as you may have heard by now, Mikhail Gorbachev, the final leader of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, died after a long illness today. The Russian media outlet RIA reported he was born in the village of, let's see, Privolnoye. OK, that wasn't even close, but he grew up a committed communist during World War Two. He uh, wound up winning the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1990s for helping end the Cold War. He was, as I mentioned, the final leader of the Soviet Union and a reformer who helped end the Cold War. He led his country from communism to capitalism. He died uh, at the age of 92. Uh, He died this evening after a serious and long illness, the Central Clinical Hospital reported earlier in the day. Soviet Union President uh, Gorbachev and U.S. President Ronald Reagan, Maggie from the U.K., was also in that uh, in that mix, but they, the two of them signed an intermediate range nuclear forces agreement in the East Room of the White House uh, some years back. He was um, the leader that saw the end of the Soviet Union, although that was not his ultimate goal. And it's interesting to consider whether or not his passing will be marked in any way, certainly not as flattering as perhaps those in the West might uh, look at his uh, contribution to world history. But if Vladimir Putin will mark uh, the death of the former leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who is not uh, viewed as favorably in his home as he is abroad. Well, in other news, the White House says President Biden will head to Philadelphia on Thursday for primetime address, where he's going to argue that America's democracy remains under attack and highlight who is fighting to protect the nation's freedom. Now, this sounds more like a political speech than it does a uniting speech from the Uh, From the president, but it is that season. The speech in the crucial general election battleground state of Pennsylvania comes less than 10 weeks ahead of the November midterm elections when the Democrats hope to hold on to their razor thin majorities in the House and the Senate. The address also comes as the president has raised his uh, rhetoric in recent days, targeting what he argues are anti-democratic MAGA Republicans who have embraced semi-fascism but can't seem to 
uh, define what that means exactly, or at least what he means by it. The president will speak at Philadelphia's Independence National Historical Park, where the Declaration of Independence and the nation's constitution were debated and signed. He will speak about how the core values of this nation are standing in the world. Our democracy are at stake. That's a White House official um, uh, con- uh, confirming what the president is expected to speak on. He will talk about the progress we have made as a nation to protect our democracy, but how our rights and freedoms are still under attack. The White House official added that the president will make clear who is fighting for those rights, fighting for those freedoms and fighting for our democracy. Again, more of a political speech than the uniter that campaigned for the White House some two years ago. When President Biden coined the term semi-fascism for Republicans holding the Donald Trump banner last week, it was just the latest moniker bestowed by the liberal media and political left on the movement. Criticism of Trump supporters goes all the way back to the 2016 presidential campaign when then-candidate Hillary Clinton was widely panned for claiming that half of her opponents advocates and fit into a category, the basket of deplorables. You know, to just be grossly generalistic, she said, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, right? She said at the time, the racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that. And he has uh, lifted them up, end quote. Recent years have only seen the rhetoric against Republicans and more specifically Trump-friendly Republicans rise amongst Democratic politicians, as well as left-leaning media network personalities and guests. In the last several months, the president has repeatedly used a variety of names to describe Trump supporters, including the phrase ultra-maga. Uh, Let me tell you about this Ulta Magra uh, agenda, the president said in May. It's extreme, as most Magra things are. Around the same time, the president also referred to Trump as the great Magra king. It must have um, tested well. Well, the last several months, the president has repeatedly used a variety of names uh, to describe the group. Trump saved America's super PAC, quickly capitalized on the president's language, sending out fundraising emails with a shirt for purchase. The shirt portrayed Trump as Superman. And uh, with the words super mega written in comic book uh, font, the former president also sent out a meme featuring himself as Lord of the Rings character Aragorn um, alongside the caption, the return of the great mega king. So the back and forth between the two elder statesmen, and I use that term advisedly. Uh, continues. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has also used a variety of names to refer to Trump Republicans over the past few years. In August of 2020, discussing mail-in voting, she made headlines after she referred to Republicans as enemies of the state and domestic enemies. Now, is this what a civil war run-up looks like? One wonders. In July of 2019, Tiffany Cross, during an appearance on MSNBC, told the host, uh, the host rather, Joy Reid, that people need to start calling Trump supporters racist and asserted the Make America Great Again hat popularized by the former president was akin to a modern-day swastika or Ku Klux Klan hood. Another instance saw Cross refer to Trump as a uh, a, uh, a base as clan like despite her comment, which was widely panned. She was hired by the network less than a year later. MSNBC was largely responsible for much of the incendiary rhetoric aimed at Trump supporters, not at Trump himself as much as his supporters in the least in the last few years, often airing segments that compared Trump and his supporters to terrorist organizations and authoritarian regimes. And while the COVID-19 pandemic was still in full force in September of 2020 and the presidential election mere months 
away. NBC News and MSNBC National Affairs Analyst John Heilman suggested that the Republican Party under Trump had become a death cult. A variety of other reporters and guests applied far worse nicknames to Republicans under Trump's leadership. Unchallenged monikers apply to half the the, uh, the country. We're going to continue to take a look at what's being said and whether or not we're actually headed to a civil headed for a civil war. That's up next right here on the Georgine Rice show. On a Tuesday. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just uh, rehearsing some of the things that are being said about half the country by the other half of the country, and I'm certain it goes both ways. But these are from officials whose voices are heard widely across the country. A variety of other reporters and guests applied for uh, far worse nicknames to Republicans under Trump leadership. Former Homeland Security uh, Department Chief of Staff Miles Taylor once claimed that elements of the GOP were not dissimilar to the militant Islamic movement known as the jihadists. MSNBC contributor Dean um, Obadiah Uh, said in May of 2021 that the Republican Party was no longer a party, but rather a white nationalist movement and a fascist threat to the nation. That's not hyperbolic. That's academic, he went on to say. Joy Reid on MSNBC has also referred to Republicans as white nationalist movement. But with the midterms swiftly approaching and the possibility of another campaign looming, MSNBCers uh, have... um, amped up the rhetoric against the former president and his supporters, which, by the way, does not cover the whole of the Republican Party. Continuing on with the terroristic illusions, the MSNBC political contributor Jason Johnson said the Republican Party to Trump supporters was like a PLO to Hamas. There are um, dime store front for a terrorist movement, Johnson said in January. The Republican Party is basically a domestic terrorist cell at this point, and they should be treated as such, DNC advisor Kirk Bardella similarly said just a few days ago. Meanwhile, a strategist on MSNBC who frequently claims that Republicans are fascists and authoritarian said in July that criticism of Democrats by their own constituents is okay so long as they understand there is no alternative. There is no alternative right now because the Republican Party today is a fascist authoritarian project, he added. MSNBC's Donnie Deutsch said in April that Republicans were the party of knuckleheads, weirdos and freaks, and that it was a simple message for Democrats to capitalize on. Underneath that, it's the party of nothing, he went on to say. Now, when the current president was campaigning, he was going to be the uniter, but we don't seem to be hearing much of that. And as the president speaks on Thursday, one would hope perhaps we'd see a glimmer of the uniter that he a promise to be if he were elected. Well, in 2022, an article was written that asked the question, why 2022 looks a lot like 1860? The deep fracturing of the American electorate, remember the Tea Party, leading to the 2012 presidential election was starting to look like what happened in the presidential election of 1860, which occurred amid another massive splintering of the American electorate. The issue of slavery in the 1850s, whether or the uh, the extent to which it should or could be tolerated in America, tore apart the fabric of common values in the nation. And the result was collapse. There was presidential candidates or there were rather in 1860 running on four different party tickets, the newly formed Republican Party, the Constitutional Union Party, the northern and southern parts of a split Democratic Party. Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate, emerged victorious with just 39.82 percent of the popular vote. 
Immediately upon the Lincoln's um, declared victory, seven southern states seceded from the Union. Soon there would be a bloody civil war. A vibrant, free and democratic nation thrives with differences of opinion, but there's is a difference between differences of opinion on specific issues of policy and fracturing of discourse because of absence of common ground of values and principles. Is that where we stand? For a nation to function, there must be some common denominator of shared values and principles. This common denominator of shared values and principles is dangerously eroding today, and animosities are sharpening and deepening. Another civil war? Well, God forbid. I don't think we can fully appreciate what that might, what that could mean if it were actually a serious consideration. The depth of the animosities now is looking less like the healthy discourse of a free country and looking more like unraveling of our social fabric. It's dangerous and we should be aware of what's going on. A new survey released by Pew Research Center bears out this trend, showing animosities between those identifying with the two parties getting increasingly sharp and increasing numbers of Americans, particularly younger Americans, not happy with either party. Per the Pew report, in 1994, 21% of Republicans had a very unfavorable view of Democrats. Today, it's 62%. In 1994, 17% of Democrats had a very unfavorable view of the Republican Party. Today, it's 54%. 72% of Republicans now, compared to 45% in 2016, say Democrats are more dishonest uh, than any other Americans. 63% of Democrats, compared to 42% in 2016, say Republicans are more dishonest than other Americans. According to the survey, in 2022, 27% of Americans now have unfavorable opinions of both parties compared to 6% in 1994 who held unfavorable views of both parties. This is all consistent with a new survey from Gallup showing that more than half or 52% of young Americans born between 1981 and 96 identify as independents. 44% of those born between 1960 and 1980 33% of those born between 1946 and 1964 and 26% of those born between 1928 and 1945 identify as independents. Just as the presence of slavery challenged the core values and beliefs on which the nation was founded, so today issues like abortion, sexual identity, and the nature and existence of marriage and family are dividing the common ground on which we once stood. Related to this is the core question of government and its role in the lives of private citizens. When our divisions become so deep that civil discourse can no longer mend what has unraveled, we need to tread carefully. Another recent Gallup poll shows that 53% of Americans say they worry a great deal about crime and violence. How can a nation remain intact when large parts of the population have absolutely nothing in common with each other regarding how they see the world? Limited government and individual freedom are the classic American answers. Unfortunately, we seem to be going the opposite direction. And the cost moving forward could be enormous. Meanwhile, in other news, the Justice Department has bulldozed a court on uh, the Trump privilege claims. Well, the Trump legal team's inexplicable delay in seeking court intervention in the form of a so-called special master. That usually happens right away when this sort of conflict occurs, but they waited till quite late, has had the predictable consequence. Even before the court could rule on the belated request, the Justice Department completed its review of the documents and made unilateral determinations about what was potentially privileged. Well, the Department of Justice's privilege review team has presumably dis, uh, 
uh, disseminated what it determined to be the non-privileged documents, the vast majority of what was seized, to the case team, i.e. the prosecutors and agents working on the investigation. As a result, even though the Trump team's application for court intervention had merit, the Justice Department has laid the groundwork to argue that the point is moot. In fact, case prosecutors seem poised to blast the former president and his legal team, having obtained leave to file a lengthy submission on Tuesday, rebutting their factual and legal claims. If I were the judge on this case, I'd be pretty upset. Of course, I'm not the judge on this case. Uh, And some analysts um, and one who does not believe the Justice Department intends to prosecute the president, the former president, for mishandling classified information or records retention violations um, is not surprised that prosecutors are living dangerously. But it's worth observing that they're being presumptuous heedlessly. Uh, So um, this could be a standoff. Uh, My understanding is next or this Thursday would be the next day to expect some movement in this uh, ongoing dispute between the Trump team and the Justice Department and um, the FBI. So we'll continue to follow the story. Meanwhile, NPR says that the spike in shootings during the pandemic is the new normal. Experts hoped it was temporary in terms of a blip, but apparently it's a new normal. That might explain the president's address earlier today and his announcements on public safety. Well, according to NPR, an alarming report um, suggests that the major spike in shootings across the country during the pandemic is the new normal. When the U.S. homicide rate jumped nearly 30 percent in 2020, experts hoped it was a temporary blip, a fleeting symptom of pandemic pressures and civil unrest. NPR started the report. Hopes for a rapid decline in pandemic murder spike are uh, are fading. National statistics for 2022 aren't yet available, but you can get a sneak peek from an informal year-to-date tally of murders in major cities compiled by data analyst Jeff Asher. The total count in those cities has dipped slightly lower than last year, but it's still well above pre-pandemic levels. And in 40% of the cities listed, homicides are trending Higher Now, interestingly, they make no mention of the fact that the uh, police have been uh, defunded and uh, disgraced, uh, rejected, if you will, and that criminals are being released without having to uh, face the consequence of their actions. But rather, this is a phenomenon they suggest is a, a trend that we can expect moving forward. Well, NPR cited Philadelphia and Baltimore as the worst trouble spots for their homicide rates that have surpassed their stats for 2020 and 2021, also noting that Portland has declared gun violence an emergency. In fact, we'll be voting on that very issue on the November ballot. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Taking a look at some of the news, charging there are no consequences. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz said under oath that President Biden's border policies have no consequences for illegal migrants traveling into the U.S. and are to blame for the unprecedented surge at the border and release of hundreds of thousands into the interior of the country. The video of Ortiz's assertions came during a recorded deposition in July as part of a discovery and a lawsuit by Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody against the Department of Homeland Security and other border agencies. Ortiz, who has more than 31 years experience in law enforcement, told attorneys representing Florida that he believes migration will increase at an exponential rate as the southern border because there is no consequence in place to curb the the, uh, tide of migrants flooding into the U.S. 
Setting the stage, America First Legal Foundation founder Stephen Miller expressed concern over President Biden's recent comment regarding the MAGA movement on the Ingram angle. Miller said, you're setting the stage with the rhetoric to use the awesome power of the state to persecute political dissenters, to persecute traditional Americans, faithful Americans, conservatives, Bible believers. Just like you saw Garland weaponize the Department of Justice to go after parents objecting to critical race theory, you're going to see them using the powers of the security state to surveil Americans, to censor Americans, to silence them in full collusion with big tech. You're going to see our civil liberties stripped away in this country, and I think that's something that should terrify all Americans. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. When Biden talks this away... Uh, talks this way, rather, about people he disagrees with. He's saying any tactic, any measure, anything would be justified because these people are evil. That is truly frightening. Well, the president is asking Congress to approve $1.1 billion arms sale to Taiwan. The president will ask Congress to approve the billions uh, in arms sales for Taiwan as the country continues to face military aggression from communist China. Meanwhile, the U.S. support for Ukraine has led to uncomfortably low ammunition reserves for the U.S. military. Some of the U.S. military's ammunition stores are uncomfortably low due to constant support for the Utre- Ukraine military. The U.S. has sent more than $10 billion in equipment. The president's uh, presidential palace in Baghdad is overrun and the U.S. embassy evacuated by helicopter. The Post Millennial reports that it was reported on Monday that the presidential palace there in Iraq was breached and that the U.S. embassy was reportedly evacuated. There were reports of U.S. embassy employees seen leaving the embassy and evacuating the green zone via helicopter. Uh, Al uh, Sarder uh, announced on Monday that he was leaving politics, spurring Shiites to riot and breach the presidential power. Al Sadr is their biggest political leader in Iraq and once led militias during the war. I hereby announce my final withdrawal, Al Sadr said. Ben Johnson weighs in, saying uh, the U.S. embassy employees being evacuated from the roof in Baghdad. This is the new normal under the current leadership. A Department of Justice review of seized Mar-a-Lago documents is already complete. As mentioned a moment ago, the DOJ could possibly halt efforts to appoint a special master to preside over the taken documents. The Justice Department announced in a court filing Monday they'd already reviewed said documents. Elon Musk says we need oil and gas because otherwise civilization will crumble. Tesla boss Elon Musk told European energy leaders that the world needs more oil and natural gas and should continue operating nuclear power plants while investing heavily in renewable energy sources. I think we actually need more oil and gas, not less, but simultaneously moving as fast as we can to sustainable energy economy. Tusk's, uh, the Tesla chief's uh, chief executive rather and largest shareholder told a conference in Norway. Realistically, I think I need to use oil and gas in the short term because otherwise civilization will crumble, he told reporters. Well, Russia's oil output is booming. Wall Street Journal says that Russia pumps almost as much oil into the global markets as it did before its invasion of Ukraine. With oil prices up, Moscow is also making more money. Demand for some of the world's largest economies has given Russian President Vladimir Putin the upper hand in the energy battle that shadows the war in Ukraine and has confounded the West's bid to cripple Russia's economy with sanctions. Oil revenue more than makes up the difference. Russia is swimming in cash, says uh, Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for International Finance. 
The current price of oil is around $100 a barrel, which is $31 higher than its price a year ago due to elevated demand, allowing Russia to heavily profit from its sales. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf is seeking to give Pennsylvania families a step up with a $2,000 handout. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Wolf is calling on Republican lawmakers in his state Monday to help pass a bill that would allow Pennsylvania to send $2,000 to families making less than $80,000 in order to help them fight inflation. The Democrat uh, said this is his second attempt at trying to get this bill passed and Pennsylvania can afford such payouts as it uh, has an $800 billion economy. CBS reports that Wolf estimates there are uh, there's a five to six billion dollar surplus in the recently passed budget, in addition to five billion dollars in the rainy day fund. His two thousand dollar check plan would cost about five hundred million dollars since Republicans still control both the state Senate and state House and their support is needed to pass Wolf's proposal. It's unlikely to happen. According to the Penn Wharton School of Business, the president's loan forgiveness could cost in excess of one trillion dollars. Well, the largest potential cost driver Penn Wharton identified is the administration's new income-driven repayment plan, which includes capping monthly student loan payments at 5% of a borrower's discretionary income and reforming the repayment guidelines to guarantee that no borrower who makes about the annual equivalent of a $15 minimum wage will have to make monthly loan payments. Debt cancellation alone will cost the United States up to $519 billion, Wharton found in an analysis published on Friday. Loan forbearance, which allows borrowers to temporarily stop paying, will cost an estimated $16 billion. The income-driven repayment plan will initially cost $70 billion. However, uh, specific details have yet to be released and the price may be significantly higher. The Daily Mail reports that Joe Biden was uh, warned by the Treasury Secretary and his wife not to cancel student debt, but pressed ahead regardless of the urging um, at the urging of the vice president, Kamala Harris. It has um, been claimed Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen argued that with inflation around a 40 year high, the cancellation of student loans could free up consumer spending and drive inflation even higher. Rising rents and inflation could push 3.8 million renters out of their homes. MoneyWise reports that for the first time ever, the median rent in the U.S. has topped $2,000 a month in June, and the increases show no sign of stopping. Those rising rents mean that households representing a total of 8.5 million people were behind on their rent at the end of August, according to Census Bureau figures. And 3.8 million of those um, renters say they're somewhat or very likely to be evicted in the next two months. Uh, In some places, like Los Angeles County, the local government also has been sluggish in dispersing emergency funds to landlords who lost money when the tenants stopped paying. Ukraine is uh, hastening to build bomb shelters before the school year begins. Imagine that. Anticipating sending your sons and daughters, your grandkids to school, but anticipating that there'll have to be bomb shelters to guarantee their safety, or at least make it more likely they'll be safe. Across Ukraine, authorities are building bomb shelters and repairing thousands of buildings damaged in uh, shelling by Russian forces before the country's nearly 6 million uh, school-aged children return to school in September, online or in person. Resuming school is a top priority for the government, given the war's long-term social and economic impact on the country, its children, and the willingness of those who fled to return. Nearly 2,300 educational institutions were shelled or bombed since the Russian invasion began in February, and 286 were completely destroyed, according to Ukraine's Ministry of Education and Science. 
More than 350 children have died and 586 have been wounded, according to U.N. data. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Colin Smith, Heaven So Near, So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. Second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, an urgent inspection of the Ukraine nuclear plant is set for later this week amid fears of a possible radiation catastrophe. A U.N. nuclear watchdog team set off on an urgent mission on Monday to safeguard the Russian-occupied atomic power plant at the heart of fighting in Ukraine. A long-awaited trip the world hopes will help avoid a radioactive catastrophe. The stakes couldn't be higher for the group of international atomic energy agency experts who are going to visit the plant in a country where... In 1986, Chernobyl destroyed uh, a disaster, rather, sent radiation throughout the region, shocked the world and intensified a global push away from nuclear energy. Well, underscoring the the urgency, Ukraine and Russia again accused each other of shelling the wider region around the nuclear power plant. Europe's largest, which is briefly knocked offline last week. The dangers are so high that officials have begun hanging out to anti-radiation iodine tablets to nearby residents. The mission, which will be led by uh, Grossi, uh, will assess physical damage to the plant, determine how well its uh, safety systems are functioning, evaluate working conditions for its staff, and perform any urgent safeguard activities, the IAEA said in a separate, separate tweet. Corinne Jean-Pierre says the president was not briefed on the documents taken from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago. National Review reports that the White House press secretary said Monday that the president has not been briefed on what um, national security problems the materials seized from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residency possibly pose. When it comes to national security questions and even classified materials, this is just something that we don't speak to. Boy, that's... You could say a lot about that. But uh, she said on Monday during a press briefing, this is just something that we are not informed on. This is something that is the independence of the Justice Department of Justice as it relates to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. We are not involved. We are not briefed. We are not aware. He thinks she protests. Well, never mind. Well, in an unfortunate case of uh, trumpeting a claim and quietly reversing it later, earlier this year, the University of Washington School of Medicine promoted a study in which it concluded that gender affirming care for transgender and non-binary adolescents caused rates of depression to plummet. Well, the media trumpeted the news as proof positive that pushing teens to transition did, in fact, benefit their mental and emotional health. UW claimed that the study showed that gender affirming care was associated with a 60 percent reduction in depression and a 73 percent drop in harmful or suicidal thoughts among the participants. The problem is that what UW publicly claimed is not what the study actually found. To put it simply, the study found that rates of depression among the transgender individuals involved saw no statistically significant improvement post-gender affirming care. Indeed, the best take was that youth receiving cross-sex hormones or surgeries did not see an increase in their level of depression. The trouble is that after a clearer understanding of the research data was made available, neither UW nor the media bothered to set the record straight. A spokesman for UW explained that the transgender research was no longer a news story. We suspect the real reason is that the data does not support the popular narrative, and so it was easier to simply ignore it. President Biden tapped a uh, misinformation peddler to be his intel advisor. The president recently announced that he had chosen MSNBC analyst Jeremy Bash 
to join his intelligence advisory board. Bash's name might not be familiar to most. He was one of the 50 former intelligence officials who signed a letter back in the fall of 2020 asserting that Hunter Biden's laptop scandal was most likely Russian disinformation. The letter claimed that the time that emails recovered from Hunter's laptop had all classic uh, airmarks of a Russian inf- uh, information operation. That letter was uh, used by Biden's campaign to discredit the news coming out about Hunter's laptop scandal. The great irony here is that the only ones discredited um, by Hunter's laptop are all those intel experts who sought to um, keep the American public from knowing what was actually there and presented uh, Uh, facts that were not uh, accurate. Therefore, it would uh, appear that Bash's role will be to spin narratives that are designed to deceive rather than enlighten the public. Well, in an uh, act of unmitigated arrogance, the president plans to deliver a prime speech Thursday on the battle for democracy, essentially a campaign or political speech. Iran is dictating nuke terms to U.S. President Joe Biden, and the Border Patrol chief says the border crisis is the result of no no consequence policy policy for migrants at the border. Former IRS official Lois Lerner claimed ignorance in secret testimony about targeting the the, uh, Tea Party. Lerner claimed to have little knowledge of the Tea Party movement and what it stood for, even as she oversaw the IRS's intrusive scrutiny of Tea Party group applications for nonprofit status, according to newly released transcripts of a long secret deposition she gave. In her 2017 testimony given in a class action lawsuit brought by Tea Party groups that the IRS admitted were wrongly treated, Ms. Lerner portrayed herself as a cog in the machine, trying to figure out how the process cases effectually um, Rather than the anti-conservative crusader, she pri- her private comments suggested she brushed aside her emails to colleagues about joining a pro-Obama group ahead of the 2012 election as a joke and defended venomous remarks about Republicans um, as uh, uh, a joke as well. Mistakes being made in cases do not translate into IRS is politically motivated, she said in the deposition. She told Edwin Grime, the lawyer who deposed her, that she knew there was a Tea Party movement and had a vague sense that it was conservative, but didn't know anything else. I didn't pay much attention to it, she said. Well, 2022 is posting the um, second highest number of primary losses for House members since 1948. And Brown University acquired a convicted cop killers um, items for a mass incarceration initiative. The convicted police killer will be honored at the Brown University after it acquired a collection of his artwork, papers and Ivy League school um, announced. The John Hay Library has acquired a vast set of records, writings and artwork from political act- uh, activists. Mamoui Abu Jamal, the university announced, a journalist who was convicted of murder and sentenced to death in 1982. His incarceration and sentencing have stirred fierce national debates about racial injustice and ethics uh, on the, of the death penalty. Abu Jamal remains in prison after being convicted in the December 1981 killing of a Philadelphia police officer whom he shot while the uh, officer tried to arrest someone else. Abu Jamal ran from across the street, shot the officer in the back and stood over the downed officer, shot him four more times at close range, one directly in the face, according to a website dedicated to the legacy of that police officer. The Philly police officer shot Abu Jamal once in the stomach. The California Assembly has passed a bill making the state a transgender refuge for kids and parents. 
The state assembly passed the bill on Monday that seeks to establish the state as a sanctuary for children seeking transgender medical treatment, as well as parents who wish to put their children through such procedures. The legislation appears to be in part pushed through as a response to other states taking action to limit the ability of parents to subject their children to radical surgeries. California is moving to allow public money to pay for out-of-state abortions. A court has confirmed the California mandate that forced churches to cover abortions is unconstitutional. And Google has revised the search results to better facilitate abortions. Illinois is offering a permanent vote-by-mail option, and Russia oil sales remain high and profitable despite sanctions. On this day in history, 1941, the two-year siege of Leningrad during World War II begins. 1945, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur arrives in Japan to set up Allied occupation headquarters. 1963, a hotline between the Kremlin and the White House goes into operation to reduce the chances of an accidental war. 1967, Thurgood Marshall is confirmed by the U.S. Senate to become the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court. 1983, Guyon Bluford Jr. becomes the first black American astronaut to travel in space as he's blasted off around aboard the Challenger. 1989, a federal jury in New York finds Hotel Queen Leona Hemsley guilty of income tax evasion, but acquits her of extortion. 1997, Americans receive word late at night that Princess Diana, her boyfriend Dodi Fayette, and their driver were killed in an early morning car crash in Paris. Because of the time difference, the date of the crash is August the 31st in France. 1999, East Timor residents vote to secede from Indonesia. 2007, in a serious breach of nuclear security, a B-52 bomber armed with six nuclear warheads flies cross-country unnoticed. The Air Force uh, would punish 70 people. And finally, on this day in history, the California State Appeals Court overturns the lone conviction against an undocumented immigrant who shot and killed Kate Steinel on the San Francisco waterfront in 2015, a case that drew national attention and became a flashpoint in the debate over illegal immigration and sanctuary cities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next, and a conversation with Colin Smith, heaven so near, so far. When the Georgine Rice Show returns. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. It read, I came as close to heaven as a person can be without getting in. So begins the compelling story of Judas Iscariot in the book that we're going to be talking about, Heaven So Near So Far. Written by author and pastor Colin Smith. In Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, uh, Pastor Smith stays true to Scripture as he takes readers on a journey through the three years Judas spent as a close disciple of Jesus, culminating in his ultimate betrayal of the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Easter approaches, he explains that the story of Judas Iscariot serves as a reminder for Christians to never give up on their faith. And although Judas was a disciple of Jesus, he turned away as soon as it became costly and took another path. This comes as a warning to us as we see a growing trend in our own culture of people who at one time identified themselves as Christian and were giving up on the faith they and have given up on the faith they once professed in Jesus. Well, Colin Smith is senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared nationwide through the daily radio program, Unlocking the Bible and through his website. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Georgina, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Now, it might be surprising uh, that a pastor would choose to write on the life of Judas Iscariot, but you wrote, you chose this subject and you wrote about his life, a firsthand account for a specific audience. Tell us what compelled you to write his story and to whom. Well, I think that uh, every Christian uh, knows someone who once professed faith in Jesus Christ and in some way has veered away from that faith or is close to uh, abandoning the faith that they once professed. I certainly have folks that I I love and pray for regularly like that in, in my own life. Um, you know, someone who's brought up in a Christian home and now shows no interest in Christianity or someone who has uh, served the Lord, extended themselves in serving the Lord in one way or another and then has grown cold and, and no longer expresses any interest in following Jesus. So I, I wanted to be able to to, to speak uh, to folks who are finding difficulty with their faith and to commend um, uh, the invitation to follow Jesus Christ because it is worth whatever it costs and it's worth whatever diffi- overcoming whatever difficulty we have in order to do that. As I mentioned a moment ago, you stay true to Scripture, and yet we know very little about Judas Iscariot except for what we read in the Gospels. Uh, you fill in a story that really walks us through the ministry that he walked alongside Jesus in and uh, gives us a context that we may not have thought about. I know I've read the, the Gospels many, many times over the years of my uh, following Jesus, and yet as I read your book, I thought about Judas in a bit of a different way. How did you determine what course you were going to take, beginning with the notion that uh, he declares in this uh, first-person account uh, that he was really motivated by ambition that in your first chapter seems fairly common and uh, innocent in a in a sense. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that really struck me in immersing myself in the story of Judas Georgine was that he really is um, a, a person much closer to me than I might have yes. liked to think, you see. I mean, he went out and he preached the gospel. He was given authority to cast out demons. Um, uh, he followed Jesus up close and personal for three years, and yet he makes this wretched choice, and he gives up on the Savior that he's followed. So I think it's easy to dismiss Judas as a kind of a, uh, almost a cartoon character, a kind of villain um, in, in a play or in a drama, but he's much closer to us than that. And uh, as I began tracing the references to Judas that you've referred to in the Gospels and also um, the broader statements about the disciples of whom he was was one, just putting the pieces together um, became very compelling to me. I mean, think of this. Along with the other disciples, he, he heard the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He would have distributed the uh, loaves and the fish when Jesus fed 5,000. He would have been in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Already said he's been out on a missions trip and been a proclaimer of the gospel. So all of these things, I think, bring him much closer to um, uh, to the reality of our experience than uh, uh, the dismissive way in which we might uh, kind of... Uh, uh, regard him as a as a villain um, otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I sensed as I read it as well, that he was much more similar to me than dissimilar. And that was, yeah. that was a little, um, it made me feel uneasy, <laughs> recognizing yeah. that one can walk closely with Jesus and yet make a decision, a fateful decision to walk away, despite having had that close relationship. You begin by describing um, how Jesus 
identified Judas Iscariot to be one of his disciples and kind of the tension of waiting to see if his name was going to be called and wanting to be recognized, wanting to be known, which is very common to all of us. We want our lives to be meaningful. And when Jesus selects him, it, it really begs the question, here we have Judas Iscariot. God knows his character. He knows what this man is going to do, and yet he's chosen by Jesus. And Judas is not only flattered, but I think he's grateful to be counted among uh, the Twelve. Yeah, that's right. He's always the last to be mentioned in every list of the Twelve. So, you know, anyone who's ever had the uh, uh, the school um, uh uh, 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 the, the, the school ch- uh, child experience of kind of waiting to be picked for a team and uh, being the last to be picked. I think that was Judas' experience. Uh, after the others were named, he seems to have been the last to be named. I'm sure he was very glad to have made the cut, as it were, <laughs> and to be there in, in that group. And uh, he experienced the same things as the other disciples experienced. But there was, I think, a double-mindedness about him right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the Bible says, you know, a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. And I think we see that in Judas. You see it particularly, for example, when Mary pours out that very costly ointment over the head of Jesus and Judas uh, criticizes her for this because it was too costly, you know, and it's fascinating. It's the cost that made what Mary did wrong in the eyes of Judas, but it was the same cost that made what Mary did right in her own eyes because she saw Jesus as of supreme value. Judas did not see Jesus as of supreme value. It seems that he therefore uh, wanted to attach Jesus to another agenda Uh, Money certainly seems to have been important to him. He was stealing from the bag. But whenever we try to, whenever a person tries to use Jesus and attach Jesus to another agenda, at the end of the day, the other agenda always wins. And at the end of the day, there's a betrayal of Jesus that is at the end of that line. Mm. One other thing I'll mention before we continue on in the story. It was interesting to me um, how he comments in the book, uh, Heaven So Near So Far, on the selection of the other disciples. Why on earth would he choose him? And he he goes into some detail on why this (laughs) disciple shouldn't, you know, match. Matthew, why on earth would you choose Matthew? Why would you choose Paul? And somehow seems him, sees himself as supremely qualified and sees the shortcomings of others, failing to recognize the, the, um, uh, the moat in his own eye in this uh, process of being selected by Jesus to be a disciple. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really worked on, on, on that point from the, uh, uh, the profound truth that sin really does have a blinding effect. Um, it, it, it takes away our own awareness of ourselves. And it's very interesting to me that in, in the Last Supper, when Jesus says that one of uh, the disciples is going to betray him, the other disciples don't say, oh, is it Judas? They all say, is it I? So they all had a sense that they had it in them. They had the capacity mm. in them to be the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. And that's actually a sign of the spiritual light that was in their lives. Judas seems to have wandered um, through his various experiences without much real knowledge of himself. Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is a devil. Um, Judas seems to have no awareness of the work that the enemy was doing in his own soul. We're talking about the book Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot, very well written. And in it, not only do I learn something of uh, the man that is uh, despised in Scripture as having betrayed Jesus, but I learned a great deal about myself and how vulnerable we can be if we are not 
uh, all in when it comes to following Jesus and recognizing our own need for him and our own shortcomings. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking about the book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin Smith is the author. He's senior pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. His preaching ministry is shared through the daily radio program, Unlocking the Bible, and through his website, unlockingthebible.org, as well. This is the story of Judas. It's a firsthand account. It's true to the biblical uh, account in Scripture, but helps us to perhaps not only better understand uh, Judas, but better understand our and our desperate need for Christ. Um, you, in the third chapter, you title it um, uh, Frustration, and you begin to write about uh, how Judas Iscariot, who, although he's um, participating in and walking alongside Jesus in his ministry, begins to exhibit some frustration, which again exposes that double-mindedness that you mentioned a few moments ago. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think particularly this uh, relates to uh, to money. We know from John's Gospel that uh, Judas was taking money out of the bag. And that is uh, told to us in the context of this uh, incident we spoke about a few moments ago where Mary pours the costly ointment over Jesus and Judas objects because of the cost. So money clearly was a big issue um, uh, in regards to um, the agenda that Judas had. So I kind of project back from that to some of the people who had big resources that uh, met with Jesus and with the disciples, the rich young ruler being one, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure Judas, as the treasurer, must have been salivating at the thought that the rich young ruler might become a disciple. And Jesus, instead of saying, give us all the money uh, and come on board and uh, trust it to Judas, he says, uh, no, you've got to, to, to sell it all and give to the poor. I would have thought that was very frustrating to someone with Judas' agenda. And probably similar with Zacchaeus. And then he just reached bursting point when it comes to Mary pouring the ointment over Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is worth that much. He thinks that uh, the money is worth more, and that's an indication of the double-mindedness that's at the, uh, at the root of, uh, uh, of his problem. He, um, again, in the first-hand account of Judas Iscariot, it's, it uh, certainly is true to Scripture, but does take some license in filling in some of the uh, the details that are, are not absolutely clear in Scripture as we're walking along with Jesus, who is walking alongside um, uh, Judas, or rather the other way around. And Judas is then confronted with a decision. Um, I suppose the question, who do you say that I am, was one that he himself had to answer at some point. And in your fifth chapter, decision is the... Uh, is the title of that chapter in which he writes about the, the four days that uh, he thought carefully about his position, which I think, again, illustrates that double-mindedness and uncertainty that what Jesus was selling, um, Judas was, was going to buy. Yeah, that's right. And I try to make the point throughout the book that's very clear in the Gospels that all the way down the line, Judas is making clear decisions for which he has responsibility. The, the, the Gospels consistently uh, refer to, I mean, him taking money out the bag. That's a decision that he makes, and he has moral responsibility for it. He goes to the chief priests and the elders. He takes money. He walks out of the Lord's Supper. So I think, you know, it, it's very easy to get the idea that 
Judas was some kind of automaton who was, uh, you know, pre-programmed to do certain things. The the New Testament makes it very clear that um, uh, the outcome of his life was the result of a set of very deliberate choices. And so the story really is a warning to us. Um, Judas shows that he was not one of Christ's sheep by the fact that he no longer listened to his voice and no longer followed him. We want to take a very different path from the path that Judas uh, took. And of course, Peter is the contrast. Peter failed uh, terribly also, blaspheming and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was restored because he didn't give up on Jesus. And Judas did, and that's the heart of the story that calls us never to give up on Jesus. In the chapter, once again titled Decision, Judas reflects on the Last Supper, as we refer to it, in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He makes reference to the fact that uh, you are clean when there's a kind of a controversy, and Peter says, you know, you should never wash my feet, and we we remember those details. But Judas um, never sees that opportunity, uh, seizes the opportunity to see that Jesus has looked into my heart. When he says that not all of you are clean, he doesn't see that perhaps he's referring to him. Uh, instead, he's, he's more interested in hiding the, uh, the plan that he's already made to betray Jesus with the, uh, uh, with the rulers and uh, still doesn't recognize himself as being on the edge of, of the abyss, essentially. Yeah, that's right. And I'm struck by the fact, Georgine, that Jesus just keeps reaching out to him in love. Mm -hmm. And as you described the washing of Judas' feet, can you imagine that? Here's Christ coming that close to him, and he's carrying this unconfessed sin of having stolen out the bag and, of course, having taken the money ready to betray Jesus. There was all that secret. There were many opportunities for him to come into the open, for him to confess, And yet he refuses to do that. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reaches out to him and says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's as if Jesus is saying to him, even there, why are you doing this now? Why not take your stand with the disciples? There's grace for you. And that's the message that I want to come over from this book, that where there may be pressure on folks for one reason or another to walk away from Jesus, there's nothing good can come from that. There's always grace and mercy from Jesus Christ reaching out to us and inviting us to draw near and come back to him. You write in this same chapter titled Decision, As I ate the bread, I knew that I had crossed another line, but I was strengthened by a determined resolve that seemed to come on me at a critical moment in my journey. I had felt it first when I had uh, gone to the priests, and I felt it again as I took the morsel of bread from Jesus. Looking back, I now see that Satan launched a relentless assault on my soul. If that makes you feel sorry for me, please spare me your pity. Satan seeks the destruction of every follower of Jesus, and he assaults on me, and his assault on me were no different from what he attempts with any other disciple. Um, Satan can only enter a person's life when that person opens the door. And again, we see him at a crossroads. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, Judas very definitely had opened the door for all the reasons that we've just uh, referred to. Yeah, the, the scriptures say, I think, on three occasions that Satan entered into him. And the important thing there is that Satan gained an entrance into his life because the door of his life was opened through his continuing uh, secrecy and unconfessed um, uh, sin. And of course, um, the comment that I, I, I make there about the enemy attacking a Christian, the New Testament very clear that he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And therefore, uh, for that very reason, we have to be on our guard and we have to walk closely with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
As we move through the story again, uh, Judas Iscariot uh, telling his own uh, story, he uh, comes back with the temple guards and he's surprised having spent three years with Jesus. He's surprised that Jesus identifies himself readily when they come to uh, to take him. For our listeners who haven't read the book but are familiar with the scriptures, um, does is there a point at which Judas expresses regret? And when um, he sees Jesus under this new circumstance as he's betraying him, uh, describe how Judas rationalizes himself and at what point he recognizes that I have crossed a line but fails to repent to return to what he had known in that life with Jesus. Yeah, well, the scripture is very clear that um, it was when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned that he comes to a realization of the wrongness of what he has done. So I, I assume that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, that he must therefore have been somewhere in the crowd when uh, Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out after he'd been scourged and said, behold the man, and then condemned him to be crucified. And uh, your, your word is, is right, Georgine. He has regret but he doesn't have repentance, and there's a huge yes. difference. Regret looks backwards, and it merely condemns self. Repentance looks forward and upwards, and finds grace and mercy from Jesus. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter knew what repentance was, and that's why he was restored and wonderfully forgiven and had a future. Judas, well, he just went down the path of regret, and that led him to give up on Jesus. And that's the tragedy of his life. And his story, of course, reminds us that there is a hell to shun and there's a heaven to gain. And we can learn from the examples of those who are saying to us, this is not the way, don't walk in it, as much as we can learn from those who are examples of the way that we should walk. And we're just about out of time, but for the listener here today who feels like Judas did, that he had so betrayed Jesus that regret is where they reside today without recognizing the offer of, of restoration through repentance. What do you say to that listener today? Oh, well, I just say don't stop with regret. Don't stay with self-condemnation. That will never get you anywhere. There's no future in that at all. There is a future for you in repentance. And what repentance means is that beyond regret, you look to Jesus Christ, who you may have failed in multiple ways, and you put your trust in him as the one who has grace that is able to restore you and bring you back. Don't be like Judas. Be like Peter. There's no future on the Judas path, but there's a great future for you in the hands of Jesus Christ. The book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Smith, thank you so much for talking with us today. A real pleasure. God bless you, Georgie. Bye-bye. Really well done. Uh, I think you would uh, enjoy it, and it's uh, very revealing as you read it as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Vivek Ramswamy wrote an article uh, recently that I found rather interesting. It was titled, Too Much Free Government Aid is Fueling Depressing Pro-Lazy America. That's not a very flattering portrait of where we stand as a constitutional republic. People who have um, enjoyed feeding at the trough of government largesse for long enough that we've sort of forgotten what's required to live and to thrive in a, a country where you have freedom and responsibility, both those things together. Well, Vivek writes that government policies have created a culture of laziness in recent years, mostly in ways you'd expect, but some you wouldn't. 
First, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, we're all familiar with that, opened up the spigot of government aid. Initially, that aid went to families that, in many cases, genuinely needed it because of government-mandated business closures that prevented people from working. Yet, as those lockdowns loosened and benefits provided to people who stayed home remained intact, the government never turned the tap off which is necessary for us to return to productivity and to thrive. Notably, this public policy was supported not only by most Democrats, but also by prominent Republican legislators like Senator Josh Hawley and President Trump, who refused to sign an aid package into law unless it contained a higher threshold, 2000 versus $1,600 of government aid to families. Now, this may have been a, a populist policy to aid his reelection bid, but in any case, it's notable That former President Trump and Senator Hawley, Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris were all on the same side of the issue. It's part of the age old promise of bread and circuses. It's legal to bribe citizens to reelect you as long as you do it with government money. We're seeing that again today under the current administration. Of course, you ultimately are bribing them with their own money and diluting its value through inflation. But nobody really talks about that. Well, this cornucopia of free money has contributed to a culture of laziness that's resulted in the greatest labor shortage in the United States in over a generation. People simply became accustomed to not working and quite like it, uh, liked it. White-collar employees uh, enjoyed working from home with a measurable downtick in how much they were actually completing work. So far, uh, we still, um, we're still early in the process of formally studying it, and the existing evidence is mixed. A recent analysis in the Wall Street Journal suggests that the U.S. Um, more generous in unemployment benefits than other countries contributed both to its lower labor force participation rate and because of fewer workers to help meet demand, higher inflation. You would predict that people start going back to work when the unemployment benefits stop, but we're not seeing that happen, at least not yet. Why? Because people got accustomed to the idea of not working and enjoyed it enough to stop working for longer than they could afford. Nowhere was the new laziness movement better epitomized than the um, subreddit um, anti-work movement, which became the place for supporters of the great resignation to unite its users population. Um, exploded during the pandemic, going from 180,000 in October of 2020 to more than 1.6 million by January of this year. As the post summed it up, the uh, forum is a place where people post epic text and email screenshots of quitting their jobs. But the real heroes are so-called idlers, those who stay in jobs doing the absolute minimum to get by while still collecting a paycheck. This is admirable, apparently. Well, examples include a user who bragged about getting paid $80,000 a year to answer one or two phone calls and an IT professional who created a simple script to perform their entire job and received $90,000 a year. The Post interviewed the subreddit's moderator, Deneen Ford, a 30-year-old part-time dog walker, who said the anti-work movement's goal is to reduce the coercive element of labor as much as possible by subverting capitalism, a noble sentiment. Well, this pro-laziness movement launched by the pandemic dovetailed nicely with a growing clamor for the government to forgive student loan debt. Repaying debts is hard work, after all. Once again, the federal government began by offering a moratorium on student loan repayments under President Trump. And once again, people expected that temporary uh, that temporary aid to become permanent. 
The moratorium was repeatedly extended under President Biden, and on Wednesday, he announced that the administration will forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debt to borrowers who received Pell Grants for the education and make less than $125,000, along with up to $10,000 in debt for non-Pell Grant recipients, wiping the financial slate clean for 20 million Americans, but shifting that burden onto many millions more, the vast majority of whom did not attend college or Um, uh, take out debts, um, education debt they have not paid. America's youth got used to living on government handouts during the pandemic, and now there's no turning back. Or is there? It's part of the age-old promise of bread and circuses. It's legal to bribe citizens to reelect you as long as you do uh, do it with government money. One think tank has warned the uh, the move could cost the average taxpayer more than $2,000, This, after the pause on student debt repayment, almost cost taxpayers more than $100 billion, losing another 4 to $5 billion in interest payments each month until the moratorium is lifted, according to government estimates. Yet somehow American culture now maintains that it's uh, it is uh, right and good for students to purchase expensive educations and require others to foot the bill. Now, granted. Education is far too too expensive, rather, and part of the reason for that is the government largesse that has propped it up over the years. Well, the notion of paying back money you borrowed is now considered outdated, perhaps even systematically racist. An analysis from the Brookings Institute, for instance, argued that the existence of a racial wealth divide necessitates the full cancellation of student debt. Well, note that even when uh, anti-work superstars like uh, Doreen Ford explicitly defend laziness as a virtue... I don't remember seeing that in the list of virtues, but anyway, they have to justify it by saying um, indolence is an appropriate response to capitalism's exploitation. Stealing from your employers can't be just laziness or greed. It has to be part of a grand fight for justice led by the little people, the downtrodden by the system. You know, those who uh, have reduced their job to a simple script or one or two phone calls for 80 to 90 thousand dollars a year. By the way, I wonder what those jobs are. I might want to look into that. Well, a good victimhood narrative dresses up naked self-interest until it looks like nobility. It also allows you to pretend to fight for others as you fight for nothing but yourself. By the way, Vivek Ramansway is the founding executive chairman of Strive Asset Management and... She's written a book. I'm going to try to get an interview with her. Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit and the Path Back to Excellence. It's going to be um, published next month. So we'll see if we can um, get a conversation with her. One year ago, Joe Biden ordered the uh, disgraceful and disastrous surrender of Afghanistan. Now, there's a difference between whether or not we should have left. The majority of Americans thought we should. How we left is the uh, is the issue. Now, I think we should have kept a relatively small contingency in the country to prevent the overthrow that we've now witnessed. But that's not what the majority of Americans seem to believe about um, Americans' presence in Afghanistan. Well, Senator Tom Cotton, a veteran of Afghanistan himself, is one of many who'd like to remind Americans just how badly this um, effort was bungled. Earlier this month, the United States announced, he writes, the killing of al-Qaeda's terrorist leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri. The announcement came as welcome news to all Americans. Finally, one of the last living plotters of 9-11 got the justice he deserved. But the strike on Zawahiri is... Notable, not only because of who killed him, but where it occurred, Kabul, Afghanistan. 
Not one year after President Joe Biden's retreat from Afghanistan, the country's capital and largest city is already harboring some of the world's most notorious terrorists and enemies of America. To make matters worse, Zawahiri reportedly was hiding at a home owned by the aide uh, to Haqqani, the Taliban leader. This was a direct violation of the Taliban's assurance as a condition of our withdrawal that uh, it would not harbor terrorists. Its members might as well be taunting us. Well, the Taliban is defying us because it believes we are weak and it believes we are weak because they saw Biden's weakness firsthand one year ago. Well, the senator, Senator Cotton, recounts the catastrophic series of events surrounding our exfiltration events that should have given Biden and others, uh, other leaders time to adjust the plan or change course. But they didn't. He tells the story of Americans who needed help getting out, but who couldn't count on the administration to come to their aid. Instead, Cotton and countless others picked up the slack. Thanks to the August recess, he said, I could dedicate my entire staff to the mission of getting Americans home safely. But for every person rescued, there were tales of tragedy. America's final days in Afghanistan were scenes of chaos, confusion, horror, and death. In fact, Cotton concludes, Biden's Afghanistan fiasco wasn't just a tragedy for those who lost, or those we lost, their families and those we left behind. It was strategic disaster of the first order. We'll finish that um, analysis in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I've been sharing uh, the perspective of one senator, Tom Cotton, a veteran of Afghanistan himself, as he reflects on uh, the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And he uh, points out that the fiasco wasn't just a tragedy for those we lost, their families and those we left behind, but it was a strategic disaster of the first order. He writes that the Zawahiri incident is yet more proof that the world is more dangerous uh, thanks to the weakness of the U.S. government. It's not just in Afghanistan. China is firing artillery into the ocean near Taiwan to intimidate us into abandoning the island to communist subjugation. Russia launched an unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine and is now threatening to cut off energy to Europe this winter. The fanatical theocrats in the Tehran are now closer than ever to acquiring nuclear weapons. Friend and foe alike believe the United States will not protect its allies and does not have the will to defeat its enemies. A large reason is that Biden's uh, failures in Afghanistan signal that America was in retreat. It's important to recall those dark days and the lives we lost as a lesson of how not to lead a nation and a warning that America's actions have consequences. And then there was a question Nate Jackson posed in a recent column, another Afghanistan in Iraq, suggesting we need to focus our attention to some degree on what's happening there and what might happen in the future. As if to accentuate the fact that one year ago um, tomorrow, Joe Biden completed his Disastrous surrender of Afghanistan, the Iraq that Biden's uh, former boss, Barack Obama, abandoned, has once again descended into chaos and violence. It's almost as if um, bad foreign policy is to blame. No one cares about Iraq, though, right? Among Americans, that's certainly true. But other nations in the region are certainly watching. At least a dozen people were killed yesterday when violence erupted in Baghdad after um, al-Sadr announced his final withdrawal from politics and the nation's parliament. Al-Sadr is an influential Shiite cleric who had insurgents against U.S. forces. He led them. 
He gained power in last October's elections, but he was unable to secure a governing majority. His abrupt resignation triggered supporters, no doubt by design, who stormed the government palace. At least 12 were shot and killed by security forces. Al-Sadr soon called for peace from the uh, su- supporters, saying this is not a revolution. Well, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, called the violence disturbing. But he said there would be no evacuation going on at the U.S. embassy and no indication that's going to be required at this time. Now for a quick bit of history. After Obama removed U.S. troops from Iraq, the Islamic State promptly took over most of the country and much of the surrounding region, threatening U.S. national security. It took years to defeat ISIS and Iraq is still not a stable country. Infighting among Muslim sects is a big reason why Iraq's majority Muslim population is split into two sects, Shiites and Sunnis. Under Saddam Hussein, Shiites were oppressed under the U.S.-led invasion, reversed the political order. Now the Shiites are fighting among, fight, fighting rather, among themselves with a dispute centering on power and state resources, but also influence over the Sunnis. Well, that matters uh, because Iran-backed Shiites have long clashed with al-Sadr, more nationalist Shiites. With al-Sadr gone, Iran has uh, uh, more influence, unless uh, al-Sadr's departure is a ruse meant to foment uh, more unrest and destabilize the Iran-backed faction. Well, Barack Obama left Iraq prematurely and promptly started to cozy up with Iran with Uh, His um, nuclear deal, Donald Trump wisely nuked that nuke deal, but Joe Biden wants it back. Obama's weakness in Iraq set up an awful deal with a far more powerful Iran than can exploit Iraqi unrest. Both nations saw Biden's weakness in Afghanistan and the Iranians in particular hope to take advantage of its uh, resorting or rather restoring Tehran's nuclear deal and bolstering its regional power. Unrest in the Middle East, by the way, puts pressure on global oil markets. Iraq is one of the world's largest oil exporters, and Saudi Arabia would prefer not to have Iraq in Iran's back pocket. That's why a little unrest in Baghdad matters on Main Street, USA, and it's why we shouldn't elect presidents who are inept at foreign policy and have a knack for putting America last. Well, it is a um, uh, concerning development in the region, one that certainly merits a significant attention uh, to uh, what's going on in that region of the world. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops, should it continue to do just that. But again, only time will tell what happens next. And if al-Sadr was uh, actually leaving, or as uh, mentioned, it was simply a ruse to create the illusion and perhaps to rile the public, if you will. Well, the vice president has backed a fund to help um, free repeat offenders um, and those who are charged with uh, with murder. A bail fund backed by the vice president sprung a convicted criminal who allegedly killed his enemies over a beef he had with uh, with one of them. Well, the vice president promoted a Minnesota Freedom Fund with the George Floyd related riots in 2020 that saw parts of Minneapolis burn. She encouraged Twitter users to donate to the Minnesota Freedom Fund to Uh, Bail out the protesters who were arrested as the unrest grew. If you were able, chip in now to the Minnesota Freedom Fund to help post bail for those protesting on the grounds in Minnesota. She 
uh, wrote in 2020. A local Minnesota news reporter that one of the people bailed out by the Minnesota Freedom Fund she supported, Sean Michael Tillman of St. Paul, was out for three weeks before he allegedly murdered an old nemesis with whom he had a beef. That's the way they put it. Well, Tillman, who was bailed out in April of uh, last of 2020 in connection with an uh, indecent exposure case, allegedly fired six bullets into his victim at St. Paul at a light rail stop on the 20th of May, killing him. Well, a surveillance video from 4 a.m. that day showed the victim uh, falling onto a sign, then the floor after the first shot hit him. The second and the third shots came as Tillman approached the victim before the fourth um, put him down for the final blow. The criminal complaint said that the victim then grabbed his head in both hands, curled up his body, shifted his position before Tillman filed, uh, fired two more shots into the man. And he went limp. Well, Tillman's criminal history includes eight convictions for indecent exposure, as well as a conviction on the weapons charge, according to the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The vice president's office didn't immediately respond to uh, uh, questions or a comment. The Minnesota Freedom Fund defended helping Tillman post bail in a statement issued last week after he was charged. The bail fund said it neither uh, it's neither just nor effective to respond to violent uh, violence by denying bail and preemptively punishing people who are disproportionately poor, black, brown and indigenous. I'll tell that to his victim. The bail fund, which uh, has a history of springing violent criminals, wants to implement wider scale de incarceration and supports organizations that transition resources and power to um Certain communities, not all, but certain communities, as well as the uh, others directly harmed by cash bail and the justice system. There's very little attention or care given to victims who suffer at their hands, either before they are decarcerated or following their decarceration. The organization also claims that American criminal justice system, like many other systems in our society, was designed to maintain and uphold white supremacy while prioritizing the wealth, power and influence of the few at the expense of the many. Now, if you know anything about the history of our uh, penal system, there is an element of truth to that, particularly following the the, uh, uh, the the overturning of slavery in which the prison system was used to provide slave labor in some areas in the South. Uh, however, the communities that have suffered the greatest at this point in our nation's history are the very communities that they purport to have the greatest concern over. So, We'll continue to follow the story, but this is a a well-known fact that the vice president supported this effort, this just being the latest example of its abuse by an individual who presumably will now remain in prison until, or at least incarcerated until uh, his trial. And if he is uh, found to be guilty, we'll have to serve the time for the violent acts he at least uh, committed most recently, if not the previous acts. Well, on another entirely different note, I want to remind you that there's an opportunity for you next year to travel with Alistair Begg on the Deeper Faith Mediterranean Cruise. That's next summer. So if you're thinking, oh, I just don't, oh, I could probably save. You can plan your trip of a lifetime, that Mediterranean cruise on the Norwegian cruise line, which is a beautiful cruise line. Your host, Pastor Alistair Begg. You can enjoy Christian fellowship, friendship, ministry uh, from Pastor Begg, world-class dining and accommodations, an itinerary filled with magnificent churches, cathedrals, strolling old world cobblestone streets, touring 16th century mansions, fortresses, and museums. I have taken this cruise and it is magnificent it is unforgettable so check it out 
You have an entire year to prepare. Book your ticket. Come along on this exciting voyage across the scenic Mediterranean Sea next summer. Literally about a year from now, the 26th of August through September 4th. For all the important details, go to kpdq.com. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.